Well, good morning, Johnson Ferry. It's been an awesome day of worship. How about these students? Can we just say thank you to these students? Love uh, just watching our high school and middle schoolers worship the Lord. And it's been an awesome day. I'm so grateful for you. Looking forward to this uh, coming week. A week from today is, uh, is Christmas Eve, obviously. And I hope that you're not only planning to come to one of our seven services, but that you're bringing someone with you. So make that invite, be praying those prayers, take a risk this week, bring somebody with you. Who knows, this is maybe the year that they'll come to know Jesus. We, we think about the service, particularly for people who don't normally come to church, as a wonderful opportunity just to help them understand what Christmas is all about. And I'm so grateful also for your generosity to see that video of what's happening in India and to celebrate your incredible generosity. Thank you for the way that you have been generous this year, and I want to encourage you to finish the year strong in whatever commitment you made to the Lord uh, to worship Him through giving. Have you ever had a present where you had to pretend that you liked it? Some of you are going to need that skill in a week. We've all had presents like that. We've given presents like that. This last week, I I put up a question on my social media feed, and I asked a lot of people, what is either the weirdest or the worst Christmas present you've ever received? And I got lots of answers. I mean, it was highly entertaining. The best part was how many of the answers came to me privately through direct messages because they didn't want, to, they didn't want the giver to see. But I, here's just a couple of them I thought, I thought were just kind of funny. Like, for instance, one... Somebody gave a gun to a newborn. I mean, what could go wrong with that? Welcome to Georgia. Here's another one. Uh, someone got a body pillow, which isn't bad, uh, except for they were expecting an engagement ring. Those are a little bit different. Somebody got mermaid lessons. Uh, lots of vacuums. Apparently, lots of vacuums are given at Christmas, and the people generally do not like those vacuums. One, one family got a children's book all about adoption, but their child wasn't adopted, so I don't, I don't know why. Uh, somebody wanted a pearl necklace, but they got a dinosaur toe bone instead. Yes, that's a real story, and that may or may not have been one of the elders of this church. There was one that was a, somebody got a screaming goat. Um, somebody got a briefcase, not bad, except for it was for a stay-at-home mom, which is kind of odd. Uh, somebody got Horse brushes, they didn't own a horse. I mean, I could go on and on. Here's one theme that showed up throughout lots of these gifts, in-laws. In-laws showed up a lot. Um, so if you're an in-law, we need to up the gift game just a little bit. We've, we probably all had to pretend that we like gifts. I certainly have. I know that I've given gifts that weren't so hot. Like I remember one Christmas, my wife, Terica loves a clean car, which is almost impossible with kids, but she loves a clean car. So I thought, here's a great Christmas present. I gave her car cleaning supplies. She... Yeah, see, I didn't see that coming. I, I totally didn't see that coming. So she still reminds me of that gift. But we've all had to pretend sometimes at the gifts that we get that we like them. I wonder if on that very first Christmas, Mary and Joseph had to do a little bit of pretending about some of the gifts that they received. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at the three gifts of the wise men. The Bible never tells us exactly what the gifts mean, so we're left to speculate, looking at the rest of the scriptures. And we know that the wise men gave gold. That's a fitting gift because we know the kings received gold. Jesus is a king. That fits. 
Last week, we looked at frankincense, this oil that was used in worship, and we talked about how it reminds us that Jesus is no mere man, but he's the God-man, and he is fully divine. He's fully God in addition to being fully human. But today, we're going to look at the third gift, and I want to unwrap that gift to you today. You have no idea how hard it was to get these boxes from the first century, but we found them, and this is what it would look like when the Magi brought their gifts. And, and they opened up their treasures, and the third gift was myrrh. Now, I know that you can't smell this, but it's actually a fairly strong, woodsy-type smell. And it was often put on burial cloths like this. And I wonder if this was the gift that Mary and Joseph had to pretend like they wanted. See, myrrh had a lot of different uses in history and in the Bible. It was found in a resin from a tree similar to frankincense. We talked about that. Uh, it's found all over the Bible. New Testament, Old Testament makes several references to myrrh. Sometimes it's used as a beauty treatment or perfume. Esther, Song of Solomon makes mention of that. Actually, there's a very famous biblical city that's named after myrrh. Myrrh is literally in its name because of it, of it producing myrrh. Anybody know what that city is? Smyrna. That's right, Smyrna. Uh, we have a Smyrna not too far down the road. Uh, it has its roots in at least the biblical city in, in, in myrrh. The Egyptians used myrrh as part of embalming fluid for how they would preserve the bodies of pharaohs and the like. The Jewish uh, people used myrrh as a way of putting on dead bodies to eliminate some of the stench of decay. And, and here's where I think it gets to Jesus. The rabbis often taught that myrrh was a symbol of sacrificial death. What an odd gift to give to a toddler, a gift that is all about that toddler's coming death. And yet that is the point. Today we're going to look at a part of the Christmas story that maybe you've never heard before, it happened eight days after Jesus was born, and it's found in Luke chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Mary and Joseph, being good, a good Jewish family, are going to do what was their custom. On the eighth day, you take your firstborn male to Jerusalem, to the temple, and there are two things that you're going to do with and for him. Number one, he will be circumcised. Number two, he will receive his name. You did not actually receive your name until the eighth day, and that's happening. And yet, as they go to the temple, the strangest thing happens. They meet this old man who we presume asks to hold the baby, and he sees in that baby something that changes his life and should change ours. Well, don't take my word for it. Let's look at the text ourselves Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 35, and as soon as you have it in front of you, and if you're physically able, would you stand up, and I'd love to read for you this text. Verse 25, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been re revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out 
before him the custom of the law. Then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are letting your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for the revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and is a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul. To the end, the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Father, as we look at this story of Simeon, I pray, God, that we would once again be in awe and wonder at Jesus Christ and who he is, what he's done for us, and may our lives be about representing him to the world. Lord, we love you and thank you for this word. Would you teach us now by your spirit? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I think for many of us who are followers of Jesus, it is so easy to go through the Christmas season and to hear these stories again and again and again and fail to once again be amazed at the wonder of Jesus. Today, we are reserving a good bit of time at the end of our service to take communion, to take the Lord's Supper, which is such a beautiful depiction of remembrance of what Christ has done and how that binds us together as the body of Christ. And I almost always forget to mention this, so I do want to mention this right at the outset. Um, Whenever we do the Lord's Supper, we take a benevolence offering. And so if you'd like to give toward that today, whatever you put in the plate, in the bucket, uh, will be given directly to our benevolence ministry, which helps people when they come off the streets and other things they need help from us as a church. Uh, That helps to to give resources for that. So if you feel led to do that, that's great. Let's let's make a few reflections of what Simeon says and what he did, and and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Who, Who was Simeon? He may not be someone that you're all that familiar with. Uh, His name literally means one who hears. Now, we read in the text a couple things about him. One, he's righteous and devout. He takes his faith seriously. He's right with God, devout about his faith. It makes several mention that he was driven by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come at Pentecost as he would come and fill us who are followers of Jesus today. But he did come on people for certain seasons of time. And I think that's Luke's way of saying that this was a spirit-driven man, seeing things that perhaps other people could not see. I think that will come into play when he sees in this child things that other people do not see. But maybe the most important description of Simeon is that it says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Do you know that word consolation? That's not a word that we use a lot. It means comfort. It's a way of biblically saying he's waiting for God to move on behalf of his people, Israel. See, Israel was waiting to be delivered. They had been occupied for Rome and other, other you know, different civilizations for a number of years. They're waiting for God to deliver them, to bring this Messiah who would finally give them the freedom and the, and the favor and the blessing that they, that they knew God wanted to do for them and his people. And Simeon's waiting for the consolation of Israel. When will this Messiah come? Who will he be? And then he sees this couple walking up 
the stairs, into the temple. I'm sure he had seen thousands of babies before, but it must have been the Spirit that pointed out this baby to him. Now, we don't know how old Simeon was, but we knew that he was waiting to die. So perhaps he's an old man. He's not even a priest. He's just an observer at the temple. And then I'm sure he politely asked, at least I'm assuming he did, politely asked to hold the baby. And he looks down at this child and sees everything that he had been waiting for. When's the last time you were just amazed at Jesus? and to see in him everything that you've been waiting for. Simeon says a few things about Jesus, which I think help us to reflect on who Christ is, particularly here at the Christmas season. So there's a few reflections I'm gonna give you, and then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. Number one, Simeon reminds us that Jesus is a savior. He's a savior. Now, we use that word save so many times that we almost forget the meaning of it. Salvation, according to God, is not, it's not an idea. It's not a philosophy of life. It's not a thing. Salvation is a person. Simeon looks at this baby, and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation has a name, and his name is Jesus. And he's come to save us. Now, sometimes the word save in the Bible is used for delivering people from earthly harm, similar to how God saved his people Israel from the bondage in Egypt. But as we read the ministry of Jesus, we see that salvation is so much more than simply delivering you from difficult situations in life. Salvation has eternal consequences. Salvation is about restoring people back into fellowship with their maker, with their father, with, with the triune God. That Salvation is all about God coming and rescuing us in the person of Jesus. Simeon looks at this baby and says, I can now die. I can depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And what's equally stunning is that he says this salvation is for all people. Not not just Israel. Jesus, of course, was Jewish. But this delivers not coming only to rescue the Jewish people. No, no. This Savior is coming to rescue all people. And the Magi are a wonderful demonstration of that. Who, who are these strange mystery men, these, these magicians, these kingmakers? We know they're pagan, and yet they travel from a far distant country to come and worship at the feet of this toddler because he is the one that would bring salvation. Simeon reminds us that this is our Savior. Salvation is a person. Salvation has a name, and his name is Jesus. There's a story that uh, a theologian that I read, Ronald Rollheiser, wrote, and and he tells this little little story. He says, there was this four-year-old child who awoke frightened one night, convinced that in the darkness around her, there were all kinds of spooks and monsters in her room. Alone, she, she ran to her parents' bedroom. Her mother calmed her down, and taking her by the hand, she led her back to her room, where she put on a light and reassured the child with these words, you don't need to be afraid. You're not here alone. God is in the room with you. This child replied, I know that God is here, but I need someone in this room who has some skin. (laughs) God knew we needed more than words. 
We need more than intellectual assurance that he is everywhere and loves us. Now, God knew that we needed himself, a God with some skin. And Christmas is about him coming. When's the last time you marveled at the fact that you're saved? You know, as your pastor, I, I, I just got to tell you, there, there are things in my life that I'm so grateful for, the ways that God has grown me through the years, ways I've seen my own life mature. And yet, and yet, like you, I just look in the mirror and I think of all the ways that I still fall short. The things that I say that I wish I didn't say, the things I do I wish I didn't do, the things I think that I wish I didn't think, the way I react that I wish I didn't react. How about you? And I'm so grateful that the Bible tells me that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that I am free, that I am loved, that I am forgiven. Why? Because Jesus is a Savior. And Simeon sees this child as the Savior of the world. But that's not all he says. Second reflection, Jesus is also a stumbling block. People will trip over Jesus. Notice what Simeon does. He, he, he goes up to the, to the parents, Mary and Joseph, and, and he says this to them. Now, in verse 33, the father and mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. Who doesn't want to hear that this baby is a savior of the world? It's amazing, right? And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and is a sign to be opposed. A, a sign in the Bible is some kind of confirming, corroborating, authenticating revelation of God to say, this is me at work right here. Simeon says that Jesus is a sign from God. A sign for what? A sign that God is dividing people into those who follow Jesus and those who do not. And this should not be new because the Bible's told us that. Isaiah 8 prophesied that the Messiah would be a stumbling block. The New Testament says that. First Peter calls Jesus a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Here's Simeon's major point, whether he said it this way or not. I think this is what we can conclude from what he's saying to Mary and Joseph, that Jesus demands a decision. And he says to them that, that many people will meet Jesus and they will rise. The same word for rise is, is the word for resurrection. Yet also many will meet Jesus and they will fall. Isn't that true still today? It was certainly true in the Bible. We think about all the examples of people who met Jesus and stumbled over him. I mean, they thought he was a good teacher, a good prophet, but to claim that your God is crazy. Herod, no way. I can't give in to Jesus being the king. Pontius Pilate, can't give in to Jesus being the king. Judas followed Jesus for three years. His greed got a hold of his heart. I can't give in to Jesus being the king. The rich young ruler who did so many things so well and yet could not give up his material possessions, could not and would fall because of Jesus. But for all those who fell, there were also many who would rise. The 12 disciples, I guess 11 minus Judas, who were ordinary average guys and yet Jesus radically changed their life. The woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus said, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. We, we assume that that's what she did. The Samaritan woman, the woman who was an outcast, she went and led her whole village to Jesus. We think about people that 
that were blind that Jesus enabled to see and the lame that, that he enabled them to walk. We think about people like the, like the centurion whose faith amazed Jesus, the, the hearts that Jesus changed. Like you remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man up in the tree, remember Zacchaeus? And he comes down and, and Jesus radically changes his life and he's generous. And, and here's the great thing about Jesus. Jesus will cause you to rise and change your heart. He, he can make angry people, loving people, greedy people, generous people, selfish people, selfless people. He can take aimless people and make them people of purpose. He can take complaining people and make them grateful people. He can take his grace and turn sinful people into forgiven people. But for all the good that Jesus does, don't miss what Simeon said, this Savior will be a stumbling block. There's been a campaign on social media the last month or two, largely on TikTok and Instagram and some other things. Um, it's, it's kind of a movement in the West to promote Islam. And there's lots of videos of people buying their Quran and, and reading their Quran, mostly Westerners, saying things like how great it is that you know, the Quran is anti-oppressive and other things. And I'm thinking, have you read the Quran? But even, even praising people like Osama bin Laden, you're thinking, what in the world, you know, what, what planet am I living on? And somebody wrote a pretty scathing article about, about this movement. And here's what they said about it in this article. They said, they said, these keyboard dreamers invent their own Islam, a religion that fits their imagination." But I wonder how often we do the same thing with Christianity. And a lot of people have invented a Jesus in their mind that is not the Jesus of the scriptures. Yes, Jesus can cause you to rise, but Jesus will cause a lot of people to fall. I love how C.S. Lewis said it. He said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Have you laid down your arms at Jesus' feet? Have you surrendered your life to him? He's the king. Simeon reminds us that he's a stumbling block. And thirdly, Simeon reminds us that Jesus is a suffering servant. Perhaps that's why the Magi gave Mary and Joseph this myrrh. To remind them that hanging over this child's life is death, the stench of death. There was a famous painting in the 1800s by William Hunt. It's called The Shadow of the Cross. Have you seen this? You can see the picture here. You see the artist there on your right. But in his painting, he pictured Jesus as his carpenter after a long day of, I don't know, making shelves or something. He's stretching. And what do you see in the shadow? You see the shadow of the cross. And in, and in some ways, that's what Jesus' whole life is about. Jesus was born to die. That's an odd way of saying it, but think about it. Jesus is the only person ever born with the distinct purpose of God to die. And we can't miss that at Christmas time. It's so easy to come to the Christmas story and to see the peace of it all and to see the baby in a manger and the angels and the shepherds and the silent night and the beauty of, of, the, of the baby in a manger. And we overlook this beautiful scene, taking it all in. 
But I would caution us that in our effort to overlook the manger, we don't also overlook the cross. Jesus came to die and to pay the penalty of our sin. That's very different than what you hear in the world, isn't it? I mean, you hear it this time of year, everyone needs to have the Christmas spirit. I don't even know, y'all know, what is the Christmas spirit? I don't even know what that is. Is this some kind of like magic dust you sprinkle on people and then we just start singing Mariah Carey? Like, what, what is the Christmas spirit? I don't know. The reality is that Christmas, according to the scriptures, is, is one fundamental piece in this story of God whereby he's saving us through the finished work of his son Jesus, ultimately by dying on the cross for our sins and being raised a new life from the grave. And so... There's nothing wrong with admiring the baby, but don't overlook the cross. God actually tells us to dwell on the cross. And one of the ways we do that, that is by taking communion. First Corinthians says it like this. He says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, now he didn't tell you all how often to do it, but as often as you do it as a church, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I think it's a fitting tribute as we smell the myrrh given to the baby that we should proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Maybe the fourth and final point I'll give you and then we'll take the supper is this. Jesus demands a decision. We've already said that, but it's worth repeating. So my question to you is, what decision have you made about Christ? Are you all in? As he calls you to rise, or will you fall? I pray that you're all in with him and your life has been forgiven by his finished work on the cross. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and I want to remind all of you in this room that this is a meal that's reserved for believers. So if you're not yet a believer, we love that you're here absolutely love that you're here. And I hope that you're asking questions, you're dealing with some of your doubts, and you're seeking counsel and advice, all that. But if you're not yet a believer of Jesus, this isn't for you. We just ask you politely, pass it to the person beside you. But if you are a believer in Jesus, this is a wonderful symbol, an expression of what Christ has done. I often say when it comes to the ordinances, things like baptism and the Lord's Supper, those are the two ordinances that we practice as a church. They have a cross-shaped dimension. So when I take the Lord's Supper, there's nothing magic about the bread and the juice. It's just bread and juice. But it reminds me of my vertical relationship with God, all that this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done in my life. And yet also the ordinances have a horizontal dimension because This supper is meant to bind us together as a church, a family in unity, love, and reconciliation. So I love what this means, and I pray that we take this seriously. I'm going to have the deacons. I see they're already getting into place. We'll get them into place. Other thing I love to mention is that uh, someone's taking their Lord's Supper for the first time today as a believer, which I love that. Someone who's given their life to Christ in the last month or two, maybe last couple months, and today's your first Lord's Supper. Love that. But I'm going to pray for us. And then when I say amen, our deacons will distribute the elements. You just take the two cups. They're kind of joined together, the bread and the juice. And then 
I'm not going to lead you when to take them. I want you to take some time to reflect. We've got plenty of time. There's no rush. Take some time to reflect on the meaning of this. And then as you feel led, you take the bread and you take the cup. And then we'll worship together. And then we'll be sent out to live on mission. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are. and just praise you for this time to remember. To remember Jesus, to remember the cross, to remember the death to smell the myrrh, but also, God, to remember just how good you've been to us, how good you have been to us. God, we give this moment to you and pray that you're honored as we take this Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.